Today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talked to Adam Savitt, Maya Carlin, and Kyle Scheidler about a recent development in the 2016 Russian collusion narrative. We get into the ongoing crisis at our southern border and talk about some comments that DHS Secretary Mayorkas has made recently. We talk about another new development in the Hunter Biden laptop scandal and get into censorship of media more generally. And we finish by talking about a story that has not been reported as much in the mainstream media of Antifa attacking journalists, specifically in Portland. All right, so Michael Sussman was arrested or indicted. Same thing. No, it's not. Is it? Do you actually get arrested? Do you always have not, to? I mean, not necessarily. I mean, you could be indicted and not necessarily arrested. Like, you would receive papers indicating that you were being charged, and then you may just appear in court oh, you know, okay. at, at the appropriate time. Now, depending on what, I mean, you could also be arrested. But So, to review, the Clinton campaign in 2016, well, 2015 and 2016, was worried about the problems with her private server. This was her State Department emails while she was Secretary of State on a private server because she was using her position to sell influence, essentially. So, for example, she authorized a deal for Russia, or Rosneft, a Russian oligarch-owned company, to purchase 20% of the uranium in the United States. They give the Clinton Foundation money. That's why she didn't have her emails on the proper servers that would be subject to FOIA requests, etc. And um, she's being criminally investigated by the FBI. Comey clears her of that in July of 2016 in a very unusual statement where he says, um, usually the FBI doesn't say, hey, we're not recommending charges. That would be the prosecutor's decision. But he also says in the same statement, nobody else do this or we will charge you. And then um, so basically, that's, I think, the key piece people forget is that the result was the Clinton campaign realized they had a liability and they needed to make it seem like Trump also had problematic Russia connections or also was under criminal investigation by the FBI. So the latest arrest by John Durham, who was appointed to look into the origins of the investigation to make sure there was no wrongdoing, um, was... Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer at Perkins, actually a partner at Perkins Co. Coe? Coe. Coe, yeah. Um, which was hired by the Clinton campaign. So basically, these are cutouts, which made it more confusing to say this is coming directly from the campaign and has worked because it's been years long. So Michael Sussman went to the FBI in October of 2016 and said that he had been working with a tech company who, that the person of from the tech company was not named, but that person was going to be named in the Clinton administration as a cybersecurity official. They used private data from whatever companies this person worked for as the source saying that there was a secret server between the Trump campaign and Putin. Um, This was easily discredited by the media at the time, but Sussman tells us to the FBI in October 2016, he's apparently asked if he's affiliated with the Trump or with the Clinton campaign and he says no. In fact, during the time he's talking to the FBI, he's billing it to the Clinton campaign as his billable hours. So he's been indicted for lying to the FBI about working for the Clinton campaign. What the big deal is, this is another this is another case of the 
Clinton administration trying to plant information in the government and in the media that Trump was working with Putin. And uh, Glenn Greenwald does a good article on his Substack explaining, tracing back the, the reporters specifically involved reporting this. And then Jake Sullivan and Hillary Clinton tweeting those articles and saying, oh, wow, you know, Trump's involved. The, the sources for those articles were the people that the Clinton campaign was paying. So basically, first question is, do we think that the, F- the FBI is saying that they were victims of Sussman essentially because he lied to them and if they knew that he had been working for Perkins Coie, Coie, Coie? Coie, I think Perkins Coie. Um, that he would, they would have known that the story was fake. They wouldn't have looked into it. It was just opposition research. Do we actually think that's true? I think it was the Greenwald article that claimed that there's no there's no credible way that the FBI couldn't have known that because it's such a, it was a it's a prominent law firm and everyone right. knew they were working for the Clintons. So I think it was the Greenwald article that um, says you know the 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 predicate for this is like-minded factions within the FBI uh, going back to the Clinton campaign, uh, going to the media and so forth, patting each other's backs, providing content to each other, and that at least the elements of the FBI um, involved must have been sympathetic to the Clinton campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very useful concept in the law, of, you know, about due diligence, which is, you know, you know, party X knew or ought to have known, right? And this is clearly a case where there's no excuse that the FBI was unaware of Sussman's contacts and connections and, and had not factored that in into what they were doing. So, you know, whether they explicitly knew or whether they simply chose not to know, uh, I think the outcome is, is the same regardless. Is this story ever going to go away? I got to tell you, I am I am absolutely shocked that Durham got even this much. Uh, the I, I really thought that uh, Durham was going to be a big nothing burger, that he was never going to deliver. Uh, we, we got the Klein-Smith because- prosecution... Because you think that he there wasn't wrongdoing, or you think that Durham is in the tank for the FBI and DOJ? I just didn't. I just thought it would get squashed. I just thought it would go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does seem to have done a pretty decent job. He, uh, you know, has come away with now whether there's any real, you know, punishment for having done this. There, you know, with the, with the Kleinsmith one, that was the FBI agent that that lied on the FOIA request. No, he altered an email to say the, the opposite to uh, to get a FISA warrant to spy on Carter Page. So the evidence he used, he reversed the meaning of the email so that they could spy on a, a Trump campaign. Right. And he and obviously gets the, the he, Durham got the conviction there, but there was no real punishment. It was Well, he pled guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Also, just to add to that, um, I also think it's not going away because, you know, even though there um, is now evidence that Tuspin was being funded by the Clinton campaign and that's been vindicated. Um, it still is now like a common story in the news that Trump is connected to this Russian bank. So it doesn't matter, right. you know, what the evidence shows, like that his name was already kind of destroyed because of that, right. because of the story. And that was just one element of it. The other element, also a Clinton campaign origin, was the, the Steele dossier that was so obviously false that none of the media would even print it, and it, well, print, you know, publish, until BuzzFeed did and then everyone else did. But every but prior to that, it was so and come to find out that was a source the FBI used to justify a FISA warrant. And then the only corroboration they used was a media story that the Clinton campaign. So they're constantly 
referencing themselves essentially as corroboration of what they're saying is true to the point where the media is fooled by it and if you depending on what you believe the fbi is too which is that's the most generous way to interpret it is that they're just stupid are these people like actually believing it though because i just don't understand how they can be convinced that anything was there just all the evidence points in the exact opposite direction like are they getting kickbacks or something or are they really just this ignorant that i think they do i mean i think that i mean obviously there are some people that were simply you know just getting paid uh but i think for a lot of the people both journalists and so-called russia experts uh that that jumped into this story and, and promoted it i think at a certain level even if they start when they started they didn't believe it they came to believe it, you know, just sort of the, the nature of cognitive dissidence that, you know, as you repeatedly tell this lie, you begin to convince yourself of its truth. Well, in fairness, though, going back to that time, I believed it not because it started with Hillary Clinton saying it and it was like, OK, well, it's obviously she has um, problematic. It's problematic coming from her. But if the FBI is looking into it back five years ago, that was like, well, if the FBI is looking into it. There must be something to it. And now I don't believe anything, but... And, and also just the sheer volume of data points slash accusations that were coming out. There was still some credibility with the media that everyone, held, you know, even if you're a conservative and you're skeptical, that you thought if there's that much smoke, there's got to be some fire or something, you know, or they're, they're a little too cozy with the Russian government, you know, even if it's not exactly what Rachel Maddow was saying. But that's the most disturbing part, uh, which, again, I think Greenwald points out and provides another couple examples, is that pretty much all of the controversies slash fake controversies during the whole campaign followed the same process. Right. So, so maybe that will be something useful coming out of this first, second, early aspect of the Durham report is that it will be like a template or, you know, and, and as hopefully these drip out, it'll just become um, undeniable that this was a pattern. Right. But I think the other key part is to look at the way that Hillary Clinton's wrongdoing was handled at the exact same time. Because if they were just stupid, it wouldn't be slanted both ways. So I don't think it's as much that they had, it was as explicit as a payoff. But if you think Hillary Clinton's gonna be your next boss, and pretty much nobody believed that Trump was gonna win, then you're not really gonna want to go all in on things that everyone's like yeah I mean even Comey said yeah this was this was careless but she you know we're not going to indict her so clearly there's an ideological bias which I think they did believe it though but it's still a problem why were people so obsessed with this when it first came out was it just because it was something to hurt Trump or was it because Russia was involved or all the above I just never have understood well, but also Russia, it's funny, too, because all the media has never, the Democrats media have never cared about Russia as a threat, ever, going back through the entire history of the Soviet Union. So all of a sudden, everyone's panicked about Russia. It was very weird. But I think the other part that is important to remember is that Trump was saying weird things about Putin and kind of praising him. Um, he did the same thing with Kim Jong-un. I think it's his unsophisticated way of trying to butter someone up to make a deal. So that was also problematic, and it did set off alarms with Republicans who had been against Russia for a long time. Right, and again, Russia was the example of the largest country and just a opportunistic um, one to grab at to 
to uh, point to as a dictatorship and something that Trump is is cozying up to. But yeah, it would be interesting, Matt, to look, analyze, <laughs> and go through exactly when that pivot happened because I don't remember either. Like when pivot to Russia, um, because of course, famously in the 2012 um, debates, um, Obama dissed Romney as having an 80s 1980s foreign policy when he referred to Russia as a as a significant threat. And of course, on the on the um, merits, you, you can't you can no longer put Russia among the top geopolitical threats, except for the fact that they have tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. Otherwise, if you're looking seriously, then China is the real threat from manipulating elections to geostrategy and across the board. Well, I was going to say, we've, uh, Adam, we have a pretty good reason to believe uh, why they didn't pick China. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> yeah, we're going to yeah. talk about that, too. But no, it was it was again you can look at the origins of it now and it did start directly from the clinton campaign and then it just becomes a game of uh, telephone's not quite the right word but where you sort of seed a source and then cite that and then other sources cite it but it's it looks like there's a ton of it's an echo chamber it looks like it's coming from a lot of places but it's really coming from one yeah, I think it's absolutely an echo chamber. And before, there used to be a confidence that there was, at least in some part, a separation in groupthink when it comes to the IC community and the you know the FBI and media. But I think that was kind of the first prominent example that they're just going to feed off of each other and quote each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just does enough damage, even if it's discredited later right. on. Right. And there was also a lot of respect, especially on the conservative side, for the FBI in particular, and for our national security agencies, and no one was aware to the extent that they had been politicized and used against political appointments. I mean, that Nixon was impeached for spying on the opposing campaign. And I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about Watergate, but the point is that was a huge deal as it should have been. And that looks like nothing compared to, to this entire thing. One of the things I think that concerns me the most uh, about the whole Russiagate story, in addition, obviously, the interference with the election is, is number one. But number two, I think, is the extent to which elements of the intelligence community have now made this a regular practice, mm-hmm. uh, not just for in- influencing outcomes, but for the way they do intelligence. I mean, I remember going over a, a report that they, uh, I think it was DHS, did on the so-called Boogaloo Boy movement. And you you drilled down into the footnotes of their report, and it was all citations from left-wing nonprofit groups, some of which were run by Obama administration types, and it was totally circular reporting. So you have the the you know law enforcement law, quote, unnamed law enforcement sources leak a comment to you know a Washington Post article or something like that, and then they write it up. And then the intelligence community cites the Washington Post story as a source for their future reporting, and it just becomes this giant self-looking ice cream cone uh, that doesn't, when you, when you chase it down, doesn't actually have anything behind it. And I'm really deeply concerned uh, about how much of our intelligence committee has been doing this sort of intellectual plagiarism. Actually, Fred has mentioned that in our podcast we did with him about working for the CIA. They, he would say that people would cite their own previous reports as verification of their new reporting. So if there had been a flaw, you know, 16 reports ago, it's still existing in the current one. And and Fred's experience is going back decades, right? So what I was going to introduce is that there's a theory or just a different way of looking at it, which is that 
it's always been like this. The fact that now sort of the curtain's being pulled a little bit because we have some, we still have some social media access. We still have some ways to hold them accountable and spread and, and um, uh, spread our own information. But before this, when you had a very limited uh, gatekeepers on TV and, and print media and you had good old boys in the government, who knows what was going on behind it? Who knows what stories were being squashed? So I heard an interesting story this week. So last week, um, a Center for Security Policy Advisory Board member, Angelo Cotavia, passed away. Uh, Angelo was a national security uh, official in the, in the Reagan administration, had been on the intelligence community uh, staff. And um, the story that I heard was uh, he was uh, Angelo was a native Italian speaker, come over, came over from Italy as a child. And when he got access to the intelligence, he went in to check reporting from, from Italy just to see what CIA's reporting from Italy looked like. And as he read down into it, uh, he realized that all that the station chief in, in Rome was doing was like literally plagiarizing the, the country's newspapers and just report, just reporting to CIA uh, whatever he was reading in the newspaper. And nobody back in Langley spoke Italian or had any way of double checking. And so for you know for years, you just had reporting that was nothing but Italian newspapers, you know, translated and classified and in, in, into the CIA. Which is in direct. so, the KGB would, it's not like, I guess you could make up and say, oh, I, my source is the vice president and you could be lying. But the KGB had serious tradecraft to verify that not only was the officer not lying, but that they would require the person to send back information and basically verifying all of the sources several times. We never did that. And we didn't have an emphasis on human intelligence the way other, our other foreign intelligence agencies do. I think that's just what Kyle said is just concerning the relationship that our intelligence community has with the media because obviously the media has their own agenda and their biases and I mean the CIA should be objective and it's just the thing with Angelo. They should have someone that speaks Italian that should be able to tell hey this is just something that was printed in their well, New York, Italy's New York Post. But even that they should have human intelligence sources they should have people being, you know, you're not supposed to just regurgitate newspapers. Yeah, I mean, not, need... not to denigrate open source intelligence. I mean, it's, it's a valuable skill set to, you know, be able to, to collect what's out there in the press and, and read into it. But you it don't and, need and, analysts in Italy to do that. No, no, that's not what you're calling upon your CIA to do. Uh, they're supposed to be, you know, recruiting human sources and, and creating opportunities. And we have never been very good at that traditionally. And... Uh, apparently, except we now learn that w we are pretty good at doing influence operations on our own, uh, our own electorate. Yeah, to that end, fifty percent of the country still believe that Trump colluded with Russia in some way. And the other thing is, this set off the special counsel investigation, which genuinely damn it, it, it harmed Trump's ability to govern as president for no reason. And the idea of a candidate colluding with a foreign power had serious did serious damage to to our country and create you know worsened a division so it's great now that some of this stuff is filtering out but it had it discredited the all of our institutions really to some to some degree and how do you how do you fix that arresting some of these people i guess it's a step but i what would actually be holding people accountable that were I mean, I think in addition to, you know, 
arrests for people that actually engage in criminal activity, holding holding accountable people who allowed this to go on. Yeah. Uh, you know, resignations, um, you know, denying people their um, retirement stuff. I mean, they need to be punished. Somebody needs to be punished for this or it just will continue forever. And Glenn Greenwald, was good. he's a journalist. He's a liberal journalist. Um, but he points out specifically the reporters that really benefited. They were promoted. They have never acknowledged any of the mistakes. And this has been great for their careers. So just regurgitated what liberal sources told them that had government postings at the time. Yeah, but I mean, the New York Times has never given back Walter Durante's uh, Pulitzer, Pri- Pulitzer or, Prize either. Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't count just on, to, on the media ever acknowledging their failures. Walter Durante reported that there wasn't a terror famine in Ukraine while he was the New York Times correspondent in Moscow, even though he him, he's admitted later that he knew it was fake. And the New York Times has never, the Pulitzer Prize Committee has been, they've had a couple of opportunities to revoke that and they never have. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's important to hold people in media and journalists accountable for, you know, for quoting or um, using sources that end up being not credited. But in but right now we're seeing that they're actually quoting the FBI and they're quoting these um, intelligence agencies. So I think that's where the real issue stems is that we like they no longer operate um, based on reality. It's all about optics, like optics based on the media. And I think that is the core problem. And I don't know how we go about changing that, but it's not gonna be a quick fix because now they know right. it works and the strategy works for both parties. That's a good, well, it doesn't work for both parties, I would say, because I don't oh, know if by parties, I don't mean Democrats, Republicans, I just mean the IC community and media. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. No, that, yeah, I mean, no, that, it was, work <laughs> no, but that's a good point because if you are told as a reporter, it's coming from the director of the FBI or someone higher up that there's an investigation, that would have been credible, especially five years ago. But now, and reporters are supposed to be more skeptical, skeptical and not trust the government by default, but having met some of the reporters that have been mentioned, they're very dumb. I just have to, not all, but but they're very easy to manipulate. It wouldn't be hard. But I mean, the other thing though is that if they were if they were genuinely manipulated and were trying to do a good job and just weren't very smart, uh, the fact that all this information came out showing how they were lied to, you know, they should presumably be burning their sources. You know, if you're an anonymous source for something I report, and then it turns out that you're lying, and now I've reported something that's false, and I look like an idiot. Uh, typically in journalism, I'm going to be pretty upset about that. And you would acknowledge it and say, yeah, I really screwed up. None of these people have acknowledged any of this or made no, any None of comment. them believe that they've screwed up because right. all of them uh, successfully achieved what they sought out to achieve. But even that, even assuming no malice, I think they would say, well, I was told this. So I reported what I was told. I didn't say it was true. I just reported it, which and, is a dumb response. Then, you know, and then they, they confirm it with the reporting of another outlet Right. Which did another anonymous article uh, Which was the w- same with the same source. source. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about the immigration issue probably a month or so ago at this point on one of these roundtables, and we said it's not going away, and we were right, it's not going away. Recently, there's been this influx of Haitian migrants to our southern border, and a couple days ago, DHS Secretary Mayorkas went on Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace's show, and was just being interviewed in general about the situation going on at the border. And one of the first quotes that was making the rounds on social media that stuck out to me was when um, Wallace basically asked him, why didn't we build a wall that would have prevented these tens of thousands of Haitians from coming in, which 
ultimately 10,000 or maybe more of them are just in the United States now and we don't know where they are. Um, but Mayorkas basically said that we do not agree with the building of the wall. Um, and he said that the current laws in place give people the ability to kind of like apply for asylum or whatever. So that he basically was like, yeah, we shouldn't have a wall because once everyone comes in, they can go through like the due process or whatever and become a citizen. But that just doesn't seem like a good explanation to me. Well, to begin with, it's factually untrue. Uh, so, you know, first you have to know something about asylum law. Uh, international asylum law says that when you are fleeing through genu- genuine fear of political persecution or ethnic or religious persecution uh, or the like, uh, you should declare asylum, asylum in the first safe country you you reach. Uh, in the case of in, the, in this case of the, the Haitians, uh, it is perfectly clear that they did not do that. Uh, in most cases, those Haitians had been in Mexico for months, uh, many of them at least since May, uh, and they were being held in in Mexico by the Mexican government as part of our agreement with Mexico uh, to you know sort of stomp down the, the flow of. of uh, illegal immigration in the United States. The Mexicans had, had been doing that for some time. And then sort of mysteriously, the Me- Mexican government decided to let everybody leave, uh, claiming it was in uh, in honor of Mexican Independence Day, very oddly. So then the Haitians rushed the border at that period. We also know that many, if not most, of these Haitians had been living for years in places like Chile and, and Brazil. Uh, there are good pictures on Twitter from people like my, my friend Todd Benzman, who's at the Center for Immigration Studies, showing uh, just piles and piles of identification from Chile and Brazil, where these Haitians uh, had, had had identification. So they had been registered in Chile and in Brazil and, had, and were living safely. And they'd moved there after the 2010 um, earthquake in right. Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a thing, and we'll link Todd's tweets in the show notes, but that's a thing that some of the democratic congressmen have been saying is like these people were fleeing because haiti's president or whatever was assassinated recently so all these people are saying oh their president was just killed they're fleeing to get rid of that but then todd just debunks it he posts it's there's probably almost 50 ids that he takes and these people they were living in chile before yeah so it's clear it's clearly false and then you had the decision by the uh, by the biden administration to offer temporary protected status to haitians after um, after the event, uh, the assassination, and then you have this flow of Haitians in the United States, none of whom have none of whom have a right to claim asylum because they are coming from Mexico, which is a safe country for Haitians to be in, uh, and or prior to that, coming from Brazil and Chile, which are also safe countries. But beyond that, too, I actually don't blame anybody that's trying to come here because there's opportunity. It's our fault for not enforcing the the law, right? But the question is, how long can you claim asylum? And what are the, because it should be people that are in danger, like political dissidents that are going to be killed. But an earthquake 11 years ago and your economic opportunities have dried up elsewhere. What is What exactly is asylum status? No, not I mean none of these people are ever leaving. No, but I'm saying, what is the law? What do you, what kind of qualifications does someone have to have for asylum? I mean, I said you have to be able to demonstrate uh, legitimate fear of political persecution. Is it imminent, though? Maybe that's something to focus on. Does it mean, you know, what what is the time span or the imminence, you know, 
Does it have to be literally like you're going to get bombed? You know what I mean? Or, or is well, it- but even like if there's an earthquake and your country is destroyed, I mean there are two hundred thousand well, people asylum. killed. That's but never yeah, asylum. but yeah. I mean you, you, you could, could get, see you should be able to get refugee status okay. for something like a natural disaster, um, but not right. asylum. But everybody who crosses the border just just declares asylum, um, right? And then is is turned. When loose. did that change? That's a new thing, though, right? It's relatively. It's, I mean, it's been going on with these caravans for a while now, but yeah. But, but Kyle, well, yeah. to go back to what you said about the immigrants that come here, they're not leaving. Um, a few days ago, Saki was talking one of her press conferences and said something along the lines of like, oh, these people are just going to be here for a couple hours or a couple days and then they're going to leave. Yeah, it was, it was why is it that uh, people who are legally crossing the border do not have to get vaccinated for COVID, but if you're a European flying in to go to Disneyland for a couple of days, you do have to be vaccinated. And Saki said, yeah, well, it's because they're not staying for a long time. It's the complete opposite of reality. But even if, even if that were true, it doesn't matter how long you're staying. Right. Just the fact that that's the White House's official position on this is insanely concerning. And it speaks volumes of why this is happening. And it we're saying how they can't distinguish that these people are coming from a safe country like Mexico when they're focused on getting rid of horses at the border, how are they going to even know how the no, asylum I, process works when I they're think, focusing on these other things? I think that was a deliberate choice. I think that they, the pictures from the drones of showing Del Rio were making the rounds, and I think that they, the administration saw an opportunity with that picture of someone with reins on a horse, not a whip, and made it about that instead of the crisis. That's right. this, that this, this goes to the the left, you know, the left wing socialist or however you want to put the grouping uh, concept of by any means. It doesn't matter. All the all the um, propaganda angles we're talking about, all the legal angles we're talking about. You know, Matt, you asked why did they start saying, or I forget who asked, why did they start framing it as asylum because it's strategically useful. It has nothing to do with asylum, what, what they're doing. No, I know I, that. But yeah, what? when did that happen? Was that I'm under the sure. Obama it, administration? I, it feels like. It, was it under Obama? It's been a while, yeah. I, I wanted to focus. I, I just wanted to mention something, which is speaking of rhetoric. Um, this uh, uh, this was drawn out of Mayorkas during an interview on Fox News Sunday with um, uh, Chris Wallace. And... Um, who is the most squishy Fox News host? Uh, he's a registered <laughs> Democrat. I only l- learned that recently. He's super um, antagonistic to Trump and Trumpism and anything regarding populism and immigration. Because of that, he gets on some of these uh, administration and other left-wing figures. They trust him to some degree. And he's the only one with any sort of pushing back. Or, you know, and that's why this was drawn out of my orcas. But even he, and it notes it in the print, he says, Chris Wallace says, why didn't you build Forgive Me? Forgive me, a border wall or fence. Forgive me? As if it's a dirty word. Uh, yeah, or as if you're not a member of the press who's supposed to be holding our government to account. It was just so mind-blowing. But it just shows how much they have um, pushed the window, uh, uh, you know, and the boundaries of what is acceptable to question them on. It's just they've effectively deterred any basic questions about the policy. Just the fact that, and I mean, the reason that the wall has the connotation it does is because of Trump, right? Is it fair to say? And then, sure. but it, it worked. And that's Correct. that's the thing that I think my orcas knows is that if they had built the wall, this wouldn't be happening, Correct. but they would never admit that. Yeah. Well, they didn't actually finish the wall even, but for so long, I think a big part of why Trump won in 2016 is because the Republicans, people are so frustrated. There was never any willpower at the government. They didn't enforce the law on the border. 
Well, regarding the wall itself, though, there weirdly there was more willpower among Democrats as well. If you go back, there's quotes from Bernie Sanders and others that, you know, traditional Democrats that at that time were, you know, ostensibly advocating for working class Democrat voters, they were for the wall. Even have Hillary Clinton, I believe, supporting the wall. If you, a wall, a barrier. Yeah. I mean, if you go down to the border, uh, like in, in South Texas and some of these communities, um, you know, which are, you know, vastly majority Hispanic communities, uh, pretty, they're pretty well broken down into, you know, sometimes they're even pretty, pretty blue, but they haven't been in, in the past couple of years. And it's because the the border issue is such a real issue for them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you have people crossing your, you know, you have, you know, groups of 20 young men of military age in, in um, camouflage crossing your property and, you know, kicking in the door of your house and, you know, raiding your freezer so that all your food is ruined. This is a real story that was told to me. Uh, like, it, they, they don't care if you're, you're a Democrat or a Republican uh, before they, you know, trespass on your property and terrify your children uh now obviously that's not everybody right the vast majority of people we're talking about down at the border they cross the border they immediately turn themselves into border patrol but all of that is cover for the actual drug trafficking the and the actual human well it's all human trafficking but the human trafficking that's going on outside of that so which is multi-billion dollars in profit for cartels. Right, for, for, for truly nasty cartels. And none of this is being addressed. And so, you know, if you're down there on the border, you don't, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. You want the law to be enforced and you want to be protected in your own home. And it's completely reasonable. Well, Kyle, you know about this because you actually, you've been to the border and that's why you talk about it. But Saki wouldn't even confirm that Biden himself has gone to the border, even though he already decided, determined that the Border Patrol agents are guilty without even the investigation ending or actually going there himself. Oh, right. So I think that's and, also and, pretty And took away, took away their horses. Yeah, he yeah. promised that they that they would be um, punished, I think is the word he used. Yeah, he used yeah. punished. And then Jen Psaki said, oh, he hasn't made any determinations about the investigation yet. Don't worry. So. Which, just, just for the record, the photographer that took the viral picture of the Border Patrol agent on the horse, not whipping the migrant, said that he was not whipping the migrant. So I don't know how more b- black and white it can get than that. You can also just watch the video, and it's obvious. <laughs> yeah, or the video. And I, I also love how the Congress people and other commentators are sort of like these like fascist cowboys just magically are on horses and come out and beat their beat these people. It's sort of like clearly this is a well established aspect of the border patrol, and like they need horses because there's not roads at some point. I mean, mm-hmm. Kyle, you could probably reflect that. Clearly, it's a it's a needed utility. Yeah, I think they've been it's using not, horses since before border patrol was even founded. And but they know it's important because the the DHS secretary himself in the same sentence said like one we will ban horses but also horses have been used because they're able to cross like difficult terrain and also they've saved a lot of lives how can you say that in the same sentence without confusing yourself i don't know yeah i mean they're going to end they're going to end this unit uh, you know of horseback border patrol and it's going to cost migrants their lives yeah. right those are the people who will die because border patrol doesn't get to them when uh, when they're suffering from heat stroke or when they're when they're dehydrated and, and those kinds of things, so it, it, it's again it's it's a policy that you know uh, either it was my or Adam who used the word optics, right? The Biden administration has been a, a thousand percent optics. The only thing that matters is the optics of the situation, not the actual outcome. And they don't care or they don't seem to care 
about what the actual impact of canceling this horseback unit is or or any of these other policies. All they care about is it almost seems like all they care about is creating a news story that will get them out of the last scandal they got themselves into. So, you know, you have a situation in Afghanistan, then they have a problem somewhere else, and then now nobody's talking about that, and now they have this horse problems, so and now they're talking everybody's talking about that instead of talking about, you know, you know, 15,000 Haitians loose in the country. Uh, and they just move from crisis to crisis to crisis. Uh so fast that nobody can actually keep up or hold I mean, them accountable on any of them. Anyone that says cancel culture doesn't exist. Horses literally <laughs> just got canceled. Yeah. Like it's, I'm just never, I, it's always amusing how everything turns into a political issue. I mean, with COVID and the Afghanistan withdrawal, all these things that there is usually a right and wrong with them and same with the border. We should want a secure border. But if you go around and say you want a secure border, you get tagged as an alt-right extremist. But I think there's something within the – it seems like the Biden administration just thinks that it is optics and that's it. It's like they're, they don't understand that there are people dying because of their real-world consequences. It's not just a game of PR. But it's they like, act as if that's – all you have to do is just – You know, press flacking and, and shaping the narrative and wagging the dog, as I used to say. It's like it's not a new thing. But I think this – I mean, it, this – I mean, this process is accelerated, but I think it went into overdrive and just another dimension with Biden, because if not for narrative shaping and completely uh, uh, spinning things out of whole cloth, he wouldn't exist or his entity, you know, his his essence <laughs> wouldn't exist because he doesn't he, do, he doesn't exist, basically. So um, the people around him, the skill they needed to learn was to create an entire sort of fantasy world. And, and it is just like Kyle said, it, it's it's covering up the last one to. Uh, to move on to the next one. And um, yeah, the whole time in between, I mean, I guess Afghanistan covered over the initial border problem. And then it was this very like specific and unusual or just like this horrible concentration of 15,000. But really, but and Kyle might, probably knows the numbers better. That, that's kind of normally, that's kind of what was happening. It's just that uh, this time they were in like a bubble, right? Like they were kind of under a bridge because th- these numbers have been happening the whole time. Again, it totally it optic. 200,000 in July and August. There you go. So it was the fact that they were under a bridge and there was a drone. That's it. And, they, and then what did they do? They, they got the FAA to prevent Fox <laughs> News from flying their drone. Right. Because... Uh, because they weren't concerned about fixing the problem. They were concerned about... Um, controlling the narrative. Controlling the narrative. I mean, I think just out of sight, out of mind sums up this administration with so, respect to that. That's a good transition. This week, Politico, one of their reporters has written a book confirming that, oh, actually, some of those emails on Hunter Biden's laptop are, in fact, genuine. This is nothing new. This was easily verifiable at the time you had someone come on air, Tony Bobolinsky, and talk about, you know, show his side of the emails to show that, you know, cross-check them, they were accurate. Um, This story was kind of the first crackdown of tech censorship that we really saw, and it was a quick slide. So the New York Post posts this article, it's quickly declared Russia disinformation by James Clapper, John Brennan, and 50 other intelligence officials who said it, it could be Russian disinformation. If you actually read the letter, they kind of hedge a bit, but that's not, the narrative quickly became, look, former CIA guys are confirming that this is a plant. Um, neither Hunter or Joe 
ever said that it wasn't his laptop. Hunter said, there was a lot of years that I was a little, you know, he lost a lot of laptops, so <laughs> he didn't know. But what is more interesting, I think, than that is that Business Insider got new emails, subs not even from that laptop, where Hunter Biden says that he wants $2 million in a retainer plus success fees to help get $15 billion in Libyan assets unfrozen. Um, in the email, it said that Hunter, quote, said he has access to the highest levels in the PRC, a.k.a. China. He can help there because I guess some of these assets were in China, the Libyan assets. At the time, this is 2015, we were um, at war with Libya, I guess? Well, we had, you, uh, after the... Uh, Invasion of Libya and, and well, we didn't invade Libya. The airstrike helped, Libya, yeah. yeah, helped overthrow Gaddafi. So we froze Gaddafi's assets, right? And then, uh, what? So what happens with these situations, right? Where you have the, uh, the there's a toss up as to who is in the government. Uh, government assets across the globe will often be frozen until there's a determination as to who's actually in charge and should get the money. So this is big, big business in Washington D.C. for all sorts of law firms and stuff that represent, you know whatever rebel group in whatever tiny country trying to get access to the government funds that they claim belong to them. Uh, and, I mean, this is, this is a, this is a billion-dollar business. And the law firms typically get large cuts of whatever money they get access to. I mean, it, it's a really grotesque but genuine – this is a real thing that happens inside the Beltway. Right. Well, um, and just a reminder, the previous issues were that Hunter Biden was on the board of Burisma – owned by Russian oligarchs and had been getting a lot of money. Biden was in charge of the Ukrainian um, portfolio as vice president. Same thing in China. Hunter was affiliated with people. He helped facilitate the sale of an American company that manufactured military technology to a Chinese government company um, to and got millions and millions of dollars. Hunter Biden is what I thought Don Jr. would be pleasantly surprised it wasn't that way but also in fairness don jr could not have gotten away with it um as he shouldn't but again the stand i mean so now the the latest thing that hunter no no questions were really answered about this um and hunter has decided to retire and and become an artist full-time and he if you've seen his artwork you can tell he's been working really really hard at it for a really long time and his paintings are going to go for $75,000 to $500,000. And there's no problems because they're going to have a blind sale. So no one's going to know except the art gallery person um, who buys these paintings. Now, of course, they're going to do some, you know, some showcases where Hunter will probably be. And, you know, Jill Biden is displaying these paintings at the White House now. Um, just because they're so beautiful. I hope I get to the point in life where I can spend half a million on a Hunter Biden painting. Well, so in the words, so the Republican Oversight Committee said, um, the chairman said, in other words, you will be the only person responsible for rooting out potential sophisticated foreign disruptive agents access to the White House. That's unacceptable to to the gallery owner. Um, And Hunter's response to critics of his art um always classy his response was other than f them mm-hmm. so anyway what do you guys think about hunter's budding art career i mean uh so little i mean 
not even really secret, is that the art world is already mm-hmm. notorious for a place where money laundering takes place because the value of items is entirely subjective. You know, who, if I want to, you know, launder money, it's so easy for, you know, me to buy a million-dollar painting, give the million-dollar painting to Maya, Maya sells it for a million dollars. I've laundered money to Maya. Perfect, simple, easy. Happens all the time. Especially because modern art is so ugly and easy to reproduce. <laughs> Who, but you can just look who's at to it. to say that any of this stuff is art it. at all? Yeah. And, and, and so this is all, I mean, this is all, this is a problem in the industry anyway. Uh, and then you take this guy, Hunter Biden, who, as we just detailed, like, has never done anything useful in life other than launder influence for the, you know, the big man. Uh, his father, like this. I mean, it's it's truly outrageous. That's unfair. He's knocked up some strippers. <laughs> I mean, useful then is the question. Oh but. well. <laughs> no, it's just. I mean, it's hard. To, you can't say it. It's hard to say anymore. But just imagine if Don Jr. Just imagine. You know, I mean, like what it, the, Don Jr. had that one meeting with the Russian adoption agency. Oh, that that was I, another one of those setups, wasn't it? It was a setup, and even if it was a real thing, I mean, really, is that a big like? Yeah. So that and what was that pointed as a, a possible a point of leverage over the campaign? Yeah, uh, and she was an actual Russian agent, but all right. they didn't fall. They didn't bite. Right. Right. And, and they, this is just a textbook example. This is something that goes against the media narrative. So they just say it's not true. But if something like this happened for Don Jr., they wouldn't look into it. They would just say it definitely is true. And Don Jr. would be canceled. The thing is, right. I would be fine with that if it were both sides. Right. Well, I mean, that should I mean, it should be the case that if you engage in this sort of sleazy influence peddling, you would go to you would go to prison. Like you yeah. should go to prison. But uh, or, or you'd be hounded and it would be highlighted and your father would be asked about it. I mean, that's insane. Okay, but here's the thing. This used to be the case where there's laws against politicians themselves getting money. There's laws against the spouse getting money because that used to be a way. You can't, me and Maya were talking about this in our office earlier, and Maya pointed out, like, they should have the ability as kids Mm. to have a job. Otherwise, how would it work? All right, but then we need need press scrutiny on the the, uh, propriety of that. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a case, Adam, where I think you're right, like, the real solution to this is not necessarily legal, although there probably are laws that have been violated, uh, especially when they're openly talking about providing a percentage to the, you know, to the official in question. Being on display in the White House also isn't great for mm-hmm. optics, no. so to speak. Uh, they're just so proud of their boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, it really is the media that is is necessary to call attention to these things. I mean, you know, back during the, I don't, I don't know how many people were of age uh, during the Clinton administration here other than myself uh, but there was that there was the problem of of the uh, the selling of the Lincoln bedroom and right uh, questions about some, some of the fundraisers and whether they had ties to China and it was big th- but it was covered in the media like it was genuinely treated as a scandal journalists generally st- I mean sought to get to the bottom of it if you wanted to know about the story it was available now they're throwing people off social media for reporting on it right and to the so that this was the thing that so the new york post originally reported this their band or they were their account was disabled for several weeks anyone that tried to share this story um you couldn't retweet it you couldn't talk about it facebook even said we're going to use algorithm algorithms to prevent people from even discussing this story and private messages as well that's insane right and yeah. this is facebook not even twitter this comes out, it's true. Oh, oops. 
we didn't mean to do any of that. Well, there's no apologies. No one cares. But then I think this set up the ability for them to deplatform Trump after January 6th. I mean, it went from, oh, the New York Post, maybe this is Russian disinformation to the president of the United States, while he's still president, doesn't have a platform on any of these media of the social media giants. I think it's interesting because, it, I mean, January 6th, you know, and for many reasons was a problem and very bad as for what it was and also its effects and whatever. But they were going to find a pretext, I think, no matter what. Or, you know, they would have just it would have taken a little longer. I don't know. I, I think um, it was slow rolling because it was interesting, Maureen, when you when you said the New York Post story, that was the first time they censored. But it was not at all. It's not <laughs> they, the first time they censored. No, yeah. But I think it was it was clear that the story had implications in the election it was particularly brazen it was disgusting yes but like and but this was a there's a lead up and a conditioning and then that although insane to us it somehow fits in the context of like it somehow was they got away with it but and and why did and why did all this come about it takes it takes us back to the story that we started with right which was the promotion of this narrative of disinformation and misinformation uh that accompanied the russia collusion story and using the same exact people james clapper jim comey or not james brennan and clapper who had the whatever credibilities left of the cia and dni saying look intelligence officials they know what they're talking about the same exact thing that they did in 2016 and and you know you had the whole story where we had to have a, a national freak out because the russians illicitly bought you know a couple thousand i think it was ten thousand dollars worth of facebook ads and this was you know and it's great it's not great but it's you know this is misinformation and we have to crack down on this also if you saw the ads they convinced no one yeah. of anything and and all of this was used as justification for uh setting up these um censorship boards none of which are run by anybody who's accountable to anybody so you i mean even the social media companies themselves right they set up these boards to do the censorship so that they themselves can say, well, we're not accountable. The board does that, makes these decisions. Uh, and so it ends up that, you know, American citizens have nowhere to go to petition to get their free speech rights back. That's what I was going to say is who who gave Twitter the ability to do this. And right, they're a private company. They can to an extent. But I feel like for something like this, they should let the users kind of figure it out on their own if it's Right Especially when it comes to an election, you know, right. a presidential election. You would right. think that you would let your constituents or the U.S. citizens decide for themselves like what they find to be verifiable or not. But I think there's like a theme that through all these conversations, it's either the IC community kind of plagiarizing each other and using past reports and past sources to confirm whatever they want to say. We see that, especially in this case with the media, where you have CNN quoting the Washington Post, quoting NPR, saying that this, you know, the Hunter Biden story is just a distraction and that the New York Post should be, you know, vilified and should be canceled for putting out like a a false representation. And now when we know that what the New York Post actually published was the truth, no one cares because they all uh, can use each other to not they don't have to hold each other accountable because they're all on the same page. Yeah, the Federalist did a good piece going through the media reports of this, basically saying, oh, it was, you know, both the Sussman indictment and this Hunter Biden story that, oh, it's nothing, you know. Or they just pretend like they didn't deny it at the time. And I wonder the thought process there. But if there were, and especially with Facebook too, they did the same thing. I think it really did start in a bigger way with the, virus they started cracking down in a way we hadn't seen before and they were 
saying, well, we have to go with official sources like the World Health Organization, the CDC, which is laugh. Everyone's laughing because they know that how we now know how wrong they were. But nobody's saying, oh, wait, let's back off this. It's no go at it harder to to try to get people to take a vaccine. You know, there's no evaluation of where they were wrong. And I wonder if they even recognize. And again, as is, is, is I think Matt pointed out, it's only it only goes one way, you know, so you you have people you know even doctors in the united states who are you know saying you know what their concerns are or what have you and they get silenced but chinese officials can go out there and blame the united states for starting the virus something we know to be not true and nobody does anything and, to stop it. and we'll post that on twitter and everyone can share it and there's no yeah. disclaimer and, and, yeah, that and it's false and at the same time that this new york post hunter biden stuff is going on the the leader of Iran is tweeting literally like death to America. And that's just a okay with Jack yeah, Dorsey. The Taliban, and all those morons someone asked someone on Twitter why the Taliban has a, a tw- and they said, well, they, the Taliban follows the rules. <laughs> Trump doesn't. Yeah. But you know what? It's not even about the WHO. It's not even about the particular institution like the WHO and the CDC. Cause I, and I hope I don't get this detail wrong. I think the WHO advised against masks or just didn't think they were Fauci advised against well that was early that was early but but more recently the WHO came to a relative conclusion that that masks were not efficacious or whatever you say but but uh but uh they didn't remove WHO as a credible source you know they they just they start with the conclusions and and engineer back right Mm -hmm. obviously and and yes the 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 COVID stuff was another new level. We have to keep reminding ourselves because we're getting conditioned. But the uh, it was, for example, the, uh, the the warnings that pop up right on the picture on Instagram or Facebook that yeah. say "click here for more uh, resources." You know, this is a code, and they know it is when uh, even an image. They're scanning the image, right? If it's yeah. only an image, if it's it's, it's one haunting. hopeful note, I guess, is that Facebook. There've been the Wall Street Journal's been publishing all these leaked documents showing how dysfunctional Facebook is, and basically. The leadership is one, particularly Mark Zuckerberg, with the coronavirus and with several things they've said, they want to push a specific narrative and it's backfiring. Mm-hmm. Basically, everything they've tried has backfired in a major way. And Facebook employees are so disturbed, they're leaking. The, the more they tried to contain it, the worse it's getting for them. But I do find it interesting that they're not as powerful as we think, at least according to these documents, because they're not able to control their platforms in the way that they want so well i think the problem one of the problems that we have today in in the world of misinformation disinformation is that the institutions have so thoroughly discredited themselves by you know canceling the new york post and uh preventing people from getting access to information which if is you know if not valid is at least as valid as other information which is allowed is that people have no confidence in the information they are allowed to see right uh, which leads them to have no choice but to speculate as to what actually might be true right they don't know who to trust yeah and, and you run it and you see this time and time again in any society that doesn't have a free press and doesn't have access to free information is that it's it's not the case that people you know just accept what's given to them it's that they invent any number of outrageous uh you know sometimes lunatic conspiracy theories uh to explain what they're seeing because the only thing they have certainty about is that the institutions who are supposed to tell them the truth are lying right and that i mean that's disastrous 
But all of these, you know, groups claiming that they're going to fight misinformation. I mean, they're the worst spreaders of misinformation out there because they have made it so that nobody trusts uh, anything they're being told. But Mr. Compassion, the president, um, you would think given this environment, you could understand why people are distrustful of information that they're receiving. And instead of recognizing that, the president has literally demonized people and, and said, hey, this group of people is responsible for the country being poor and sick. I mean, you can. this doesn't end well. well that was a distraction for the Afghanistan disaster. Oh, I forgot. We for. Yeah, that was <laughs> the latest on that. I, mean, I, I literally forgot that that was a distraction. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, you think about, um, like, and maybe we should have a podcast with uh, our colleague Mike Waller to talk about disinformation and active measures and manipulating information because the you know the United States used to have something called the Active Measures Working Group which whose job it was to fight back against you know then Soviet propaganda and they didn't silence people they didn't shut down outlets that contra- were contrary to to the uh, to the truth or to the American opinion what they did was they presented more information mm-hmm. you know they provided more access to information in order to give people a chance to counter what they were what they were seeing, and the fact that we have gotten away from that approach, which is an approach that actually works to countering disinformation, to this pro- approach of silencing people, is is really a disaster. Or it just just everything on Twitter specifically when an article like that comes up, and now pretty much any news article, if you before you retweet it or like it, says, "Oh, are you sure you want to retweet this? You should read it before." So even just sowing those little seeds of doubt in your mind before you tweet an article, it makes you second guess. Oh wait, maybe and, this. And could they be don't false. do that for every article, though. No, yeah, it's it's one sided, and but nobody really realizes it. Okay, so staying on the same topic of just journalism and stuff that maybe doesn't get as much attention as others, um, the riots and everything in Portland are still going on, which seems like it's been countless years at this point, and. There's this piece in The Federalist by Mark Hemingway that talks about um, this freelance photojournalist, Marine Stab, um, who she was basically assaulted by Antifa thugs just a couple days ago. And when Morgan sent this to me, this was the first I had heard of it, which just shows that it's not talked about. And Kyle deals the most with Antifa. And just when you read stories like this, it makes the comments that FBI Director Ray made what a year or so ago um just about antifa in general where he said that antifa is not a group or an organization it's a movement or an ideology i just don't understand how that can be true when you read stories like this well it's not it's not true matt which is um why it's easy for them to say this is a really i I love this story by by mark hemingway it's a really important story because it gets at part of the reason why the information that most people have about what Antifa is is so terrible. And it's because uh, if you try to cover Antifa as a journalist, you will you will pay a cost uh, if you try to cover them accurately, if you try to cover them fairly. Um, you know, they will attack people who point their cameras at them, who try to simply do- – I mean simply trying to document what literally happened uh, with – you know – they presume that anybody who covers them in a negative light is an enemy, is is as they would say a fascist, uh, regardless of 
you know their actual. So you have in the story uh, by Mark Hemingway, you know he's, he's got a number of journalists who say, you know, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat. I was just trying to get the story, and I, you know, I was assaulted um, repeatedly. And part of the part of the reason Antifa does that is twofold. Obviously, one, they're trying to control the information narrative about them. Uh, but two, they also believe. Uh, that any journalist who is covering them and trying to take their picture and that kind of thing is essentially working for the enemy because they do have their own journalists who do work closely with them, uh, who do try to dox their opponents. Dox meaning to release public information about uh, somebody in order in order to harm them. So, you know, there are journalists, and I have, I have in my hand an article from Quillet uh, in the title. This is from 2019. Uh, it's not your imagination. The journalists writing about Antifa are often their cheerleaders. And this is 100% true. You have these cases where you've got journalists, sometimes in in left-wing but generally reputable outlets like The Guardian, uh, where they'll write these hagiographic uh, pro-Antifa articles, and they have Antifa sources, and Antifa sources will leak them information about uh, whatever opponent Santifa has, and they'll publish these these things. And so this is this is the Antifa view of journalism that this and and so they think that anybody who's covering them who isn't on their side must be doing it for their opponents. You know what that sounds like? What fascism? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It's it, it's it's absolutely totalitarian in that sense, right? The, the, the desire to control the narrative and 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 to harm people, and they. And the, there's a good point, part in the article where uh, he talks about Andy No, who's a conservative journalist uh, who has been repeatedly violently assaulted by Antifa, and he's never had any uh, professional journalist society make any kind of comment about, you know. Did the they fact throw that acid on his face? They threw, uh, so they did what was called a milkshaking, where they threw some kind of liquid at him. Uh, from a cup, uh, there were reports at the time that they were mixing in uh, quickcrete cement into nice. uh, into these milkshakes. I don't know if that was ever a hundred percent confirmed, but there were definitely reports that that was the case. But yeah, they throw any number of, of noxious liquids. I mean, people. the pictures he was it was something. I mean, his face looked burned or something. It wasn't yeah, it was, just he. It was pretty clearly something something noxious. It was not just you know a milkshake like they said. One of the things that was good in Mark's article is that he cited the. it's not just anecdotal evidence. It's not just a few cases that look really scary. It was, I think, 400 cases of assault on journalists from Antifa last year alone. So we hear about Andy. No, but how, how often do you think it works where journalists just shut up about it? I think most of the time. Uh, I was uh, watching on the night of the election Antifa protests in Washington, D.C., which most of you probably don't know occurred, but they did. Uh, and it was interesting to watch as the sort of leaders of this of this march were just yelling and berating journalists. Uh, and in one case, um, they went after a British commentator, Douglas Murray, because he happened to, happened to see some people uh, who, who were changing uh, into their black block uniforms, 
that's the all black sort of stuff that they wear. Uh, and if if you catch one of them changing into black in or in or out of their out of their block, uh, that is a really dangerous situation because they will very frequently do violence on you because the one thing they do not want is to be identified. Yeah. So the study that Morgan referenced, there's this group called the Committee to Protect, Protect Journalists. And since 2017, they tracked and documented 517 journalists that were attacked during these protests. And 400 of those were last year in 2020 alone. And there just could not have been 400 separate news articles about each of those instances. It's just something that, for whatever reason, the media is not covering. I mean, now if you Google you know, Portland, Antifa, or like building destruction, all that comes up are articles blaming like the Proud Boys and like right-wing extremists. And of course they don't refer to them as Antifa, they just say they're opponents. They don't even say like left-wing or like far left people, but they're just documenting violence that in quotes, like the, the you know, Proud Boys are perpetuating in Portland and images of them flipping over a van, a, a, like a big van that was kind of like circulated recently. And also the tagline that they're actually or officials in Portland are nervous that the alt-right people are going to encourage their opponents to engage in violence too. Like they're the ones who are, you know, starting this. It's, yeah, it's really blaming, crazy. It's like blaming the wife for being beaten up by her husband type and, situation. And then, I mean, there's a, a reference in the article uh, that there's been something like four events with Proud Boys in Portland in the, in the last year. Mm-hmm. Wasn't wasn't one of them? Oh, it wasn't proper. It was like a church was praying on a in a park, and then how dare they physically assaulted them? Mm-hmm. Were they yeah. in the chop? I don't know, area? but but but, it, but you know this goes back to the uh, administration, and I'll compare them. That's fine. Uh, uh, which is that uh, uh, when you control, it's about controlling the imagery and the narrative, and obviously they they're kind of ingenious. Although it seems simple, well, you just you beat and yell at and intimidate your reporters, and then they don't re- then they don't report, but. It's the same thing with the drone flying over the Del Rio camp. You know, if you don't see it, you, you don't know about it. So if only their people are getting the right angles and the right, this said this in the article, you know, the, the right angles and the right moments, you know, not the hour leading up where they were intimidating and attacking the law enforcement outside of the courthouse in Portland. But that one moment that finally the law enforcement responded, then they have the narrative. And if it's the only documentary evidence, then what, you know. And what I think is so fascinating about this is, is, uh, instead of turning journalists against the people who attack them, uh, they are more supportive of them, not less. Because uh, they are cowards. <laughs> in that sort of Stockholm Syndrome sort of way. And it, what it reminds me of is Gaza. Uh, and you've got you know examples of like the Associated Press building where they were embedded with Hamas intelligence uh probably some of them were Hamas intelligence but uh you know and they're they're heavily embedded uh with but Kyle, these they didn't know. groups uh and 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 they even though they will suffer violence if they do their job uh they're happier to just sort of play along and the associated press obviously denied ever knowing that Hamas militants you know would utilize their building but an actual associated press like former employee wrote this piece in 2014, you know, after that wave of violence between, you know, Hamas and Israel, talking about a scene where Hamas terrorists walk in like with machine guns and threaten them all. And he literally worked for the Associated Press in that exact building that they deny ever having knowledge of. So I don't know why people can't put two and two together that it's just BS. It's it's a matter for on the part of the journalists, it's a a matter of self-selection, whether in the Antifa or the 
uh, Gaza case because those who don't like getting beaten up at work and want to do something else and just want to, don't want to put up with it will go home and the ones that have any morals and w- report properly will go home and then you'll get yeah the sycophants and the ones who stick around and that's it Kyle how big of a so we've I mean last fall it was riots our office was boarded up for most of the fall um, it's a very different feel it's back it's not as Basically, it seems like they've just kind of disappeared. Is it that we just haven't heard about it, or have they backed off because they because Trump's gone? Yeah, you're for the most part, you're just not hearing about it um, for two reasons. One, uh, the media coverage is just not there. So uh, certainly, the media is not willing to be beaten in order to tell the truth, but they are just not reporting what happens. Uh, you know, and so things are are not discussed. Uh, and then there is a significant falling off in backing from the the large uh, BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter movement associated support groups. So they're not getting, uh, the Antifa types are not getting the same level of, say, bail fund support and those sorts of things, uh, which makes things a little bit challenging for them. Uh, in places where they are very strong, like Portland and Seattle, you're still seeing regular actions. Uh, and everywhere across the country, they're engaging in what they call mutual aid, which is a, a type of um, providing uh, resources and, and that kind of thing in order to foster goodwill. So they are certainly in a building phase uh, right now. Uh, I'm certainly concerned that they could turn the temperature up again pretty easily if they wanted to. So going back to something that Maya said earlier, just how none of this was talked about back when the uh, protests and everything were taking place, was it because the CNNs and MSNBCs of the world like have Antifa people working for them? What is other than they just don't want to make us seem right by we're saying that Antifa is a problem and they don't want to cover it? Why wasn't it covered as much? Yeah, I mean, I think it was... Uh So you had a a couple of things. One, fear, obviously. One, ideological alignment. Uh, Then I think they didn't want to help the Trump administration. Uh, So I think they felt that if they they covered accurately the involvement of these types of groups in the protests, it would diminish uh, the BLM cause and it would uh, support things that the president was saying, uh, which happened to be true, but that didn't matter. Uh, and you know, we—I mean, we now know we pretty good uh, a pretty good report from the major cities' chief association, which is the major association of police chiefs. Uh, they did a poll of their members of you know what did you experience in 2020, and most of the things that we were told didn't happen happened. Um, the vast majority of them reported outside protesters. A significant uh, majority, about one quarter. Uh, reported some evidence that certain protesters had been paid to riot. Uh, they reported, you know, any number of tactics associated with the presence of Antifa, uh, and that there was a strong correlation between those tactics and injuries to police officers and violence. So, a lot of the things we were told didn't happen in 2020. We now we now know definitively did happen. But I think the important key is that they had the cover of the BLM protests. They could say oh, well, 93% were peaceful. It was just a couple people got out of control, um, but you kind of need that mass 
group to cover for the violence going on, right? I and mean, that's the tactic. Just remember, Morgan and I talked about this earlier in our office, that image that you know circulated widely of a CNN reporter with images of buildings burning down and fire in the background with the you know byline. Protests are fiery, but remain mostly peaceful as the city is crumbling behind him. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, what you can do with optics and and the will the will to disbelieve is pretty pretty strong. But yeah, I mean, groups like Antifa r- rely very heavily on that larger uh, group um, to hide in and among, and they certainly you know they work very hard to create agitation so that they can blend into a larger riot. So they'll do things like, you know, the you know if they're marching through an air, a commercial area, uh, it's often going to be a black-garbed Antifa guy who breaks the first window, uh, and then people might pour in there and start stealing things at the target. Uh, but who actually started it? It was it was the Antifa guy who broke the window right. and caused the riot. People in crowds act with a hive mind, right? It's- yeah, so the, there, there's there's interesting studies about what is what level of activity individuals require in order to get them to to uh, you know throw the first stone or whatever. So very very few people are willing to you know do the first violent act, but if you can create an environment where it, where it appears like enough people are doing it, then you start to get buy-in from people. Uh, and of course, it's also it, um, you know they'll engage with clashes with police. Police then have to respond. The response then stirs up the crowd and causes uh, a reaction, which then causes another police reaction. So it's it's playing with all of those uh, the psychology and dynamics of crowds to to cause violence. And it, it is I mean it it looks simple, but it isn't. There's there's a level of skill and strategy involved in doing it that does require some level of understanding. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notclear.org so we can get in touch with you.